Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're up to nearly 200 episodes, lots of great guests, but no show so far about a novel. And that's about to change. Our discussion today is about The Wall, a dystopian story in a post-climate change world. A wall is built to keep migrants out at all costs, and anyone who lets them in will be deported. Us versus them. The Wall with John Lanchester. I think it's psychologically very difficult, climate change. I think it's a very difficult subject to look straight at. There's the French aphorist La Rochefoucauld said, death, like the sun, cannot be contemplated directly. In other words, you can't look straight at it. It's not the thing we can easily get our heads around, we can easily process. And I think one of the things that it's possible to do in fiction and in other artistic forms is to, is to in a way, slip past the radar, slip under the radar, slip past people's defences, to make things thinkable in a way that it's actually quite difficult to look straight at them. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? Richard, you know, we talk a lot about climate change. We've touched on this issue in a number of shows. There's no question that the rise of carbon in the Earth's atmosphere will have significant effects on the climate, quite possibly including worse droughts, more severe storms, rise in sea level, change in weather patterns, droughts, which in turn could lead to all kinds of mass migration. Yeah, but how could climate change and those changes you're talking about change ourselves, our politics, our society? Will we grow much more dogmatic, defensive, fearful? Today we look at a story that suggests where we might be headed if we don't act with open eyes and open hearts to limit climate change. In The Wall by John Lanchester, an island nation builds an enormous concrete barrier around its entire coastline. The defenders who patrol it have one task, stop the others from breaching the wall and getting in. Our guest is the author of The Wall, John Lanchester, a British journalist, essayist, and novelist. Welcome to How Do We Fix It? Thanks for having me. So let's begin with this story, which follows a fellow called Joseph Cavanaugh, who has been enlisted as a new defender on the wall. He's, in fact, been drafted into something called the Coastal Protection Force. Yes, it's set in a world after catastrophic climate change, and it's set in an island in the North Atlantic that's a sort of altered version of Britain. 
And the whole island has a 10,000-kilometer, 6,000-mile-long concrete wall running all the way around it. And everyone in the country, every citizen in the country, has to spend two years standing guard on the wall, which is partly there to keep the water out, the high flood levels after the catastrophic climate change. And it's also partly to keep out the millions of desperate people fleeing other parts of the world trying to get to the island for safety. It's a world altered by about four degrees centigrade, eight, nine Fahrenheit warmer, never spelt out in the book. They just refer to it as the change, but it's this sort of alteration in climate. And everyone in this island nation, surrounded by this concrete monster wall that you described, as a sort of condition of citizenship, you have to spend two years standing guard on it as a defender, where your job basically is to keep to keep out the people they refer to as the others, who are those you know starving, desperate millions of people fleeing the now uninhabitable parts of the world. And it's a pretty brutal form of military service. Like, what happens to you if you don't succeed and a couple of those others manage to sneak by? Well, what happens is if, if in, the, in the course of your two-year turn of duty, if one of the others gets over the wall on your watch, you yourself are put to sea and become another in, in your turn. And the people who get over the wall are given a, a three-way choice. They can choose to be euthanized, which is being to be medically killed, put down in the way that we put down sick animals. They can be put back out to sea, or they can become what in the book they call help, which is a form of slavery or indentured servitude. And what did you look to to kind of shape your ideas about what this post-climate change world would be like? I tried to stay on top of the science over the last few years. It's quite difficult to do not so much for technical reasons, but I think it's psychologically very difficult, climate change. I think it's a very difficult subject to look straight at. There's the French aphorist La Rochefoucauld said, death, like the sun, cannot be contemplated directly. In other words, you can't look straight at it. And I think something like that is true of climate change. So I, I tried to kind of stay current with what the science is saying, and at the same time it's actually quite difficult sustainedly to do. So what happens in the book is there's quite a lot of reading and research sort of below the surface but I did try and keep it out of the, the book because it's part of the problem um, is that you can't really explain in a novel explanation kills fiction so there's lots of that kind of research that is sort of below the surface in the book So how can novels inform us about policy in a way that newspaper articles or books magazine articles cannot well, James Baldwin said this uh, profoundly true thing, that, that the main way writers can change the world is by changing the way we see the world. In other words, Dickens didn't personally close any of the Victorian institutions that he wrote about, but he did change the way people thought about them and saw them and make them look morally untenable. And that was the thing that led to the change. And Just for our listeners, Dickens wrote extensively about asylums and prisons and other institutions in the mid-19th century in Victorian Britain. And was an incredibly important figure in social reform, despite not directly being involved in social reform except through his fiction. And I think James Baldwin arguably changed the world too, not through his activism but through the power of his imagination and through works like The Fire Next Time, which actually made people see the question of the racial division com completely differently. And I think that's the impact you can have in a work of fiction, you can make people just see things slightly differently. And I think it links back to what I said earlier, but there's a particular problem with climate change in that it just is very difficult to face. It's very difficult to 
contemplate, it's very difficult to process this thing of catastrophic, global and permanent change. I mean, it's, it's not the thing we can easily get our heads around, we can easily process. And I think one of the things that it's possible to do in fiction and in other artistic forms is to, is to in a way, slip past the radar, past people's defences, to make things thinkable in a way that it's actually quite difficult to look straight at them. You express sympathy for people who deny the reality of climate change. And I think that's interesting because many people who think that climate change is an urgent crisis are somewhat disdainful of people who do deny climate change. Well, I think it's important to, you know, accept the realities of climate change and what it is, but but why wouldn't we want to deny it? I mean, I do have deep empathy with the position of just wanting it not to be. I, I want it not to be true. You know, I, I, I would love to wake up tomorrow morning and I was going to say uh, look at the front page of the paper, but these days it's more more likely to be, you know, look at the Twitter feed or something and, and see, you know, scientists decide climate change is a mistake after all. You know, that would be literally the best news any of us has had in our adult lifetimes. I couldn't empathize with it more profoundly this unfortunately though it's it's wrong and it's a position we we can't afford we you know as a species we just can't afford to do that but part of what makes it a hard conversation it's not a binary question it's often treated as a binary question do you believe in it or not when in fact a lot of the debate centers around questions of ranges it's hard to believe all that carbon won't do something (laughs) something bad but what i guess i found slightly reassuring is your scenario is kind of a you, you've kind of gone to a worst case scenario the four degree warming and um i think a lot of times people hear that and they don't really appreciate how much four degrees would be. well that's four degrees celsius exactly yeah and eight or eight or nine degrees but you know Fahrenheit. eight or nine degrees warmer doesn't sound that bad until you think about what it really means for you know wiping out the ability to farm in certain areas you know liberating lots of melting permafrost and pumping tons more carbon into the atmosphere just from naturally occurring sources and and all these other kind of knock-on effects. So, but it's I mean I think it's a it's part of the simplicity of the book that's good is that it doesn't drag into any of that. It just says, okay, let's look at something that's close to a worst case and imagine what that would be and yeah, you know, I mean, and the, I think that's kind of clarifying. In a way with a novel you have to pick you have to pick a version of it. And as you're saying it is a it's it's a fan-like range of outcomes, and let's all hope, let's all devoutly hope that the lowest range of outcomes on that fan, that we end up more or less with the warming we've already had, which is a one degree centigrade, just over two Fahrenheit. It's a version of life we can live with, and we more or less already have. But with a novel, you need clarity, and the, and the, the one I went with is, I thought of it in terms of, you know, the way that you get sort of economic graphs and things, they, they have, there's a solid line leading up to the present moment, and then the dotted line stretching into the future. And I thought in terms of that solid line continuing basically in the direction it, that we've been on, and the International Panel on Climate Change, the UN body which sort of supervises this stuff, they have this worst-case version, which is we don't change anything about anything, and the climate warms in some of the gloomier versions right. of it have it warming, and that is four or five degrees of warming by, basically by the end of the century, and that's the, that's the thing I imagined in the book. 
you know, and I wish it was the outlandishly worst case of all the scenarios, but un- unfortunately, it no, it's within cases, the range you know. of, of of plausible outcomes. And as an old boss of mine used to say, you just said, you know, we could hope that it's at the low end of this range of possibilities, but hope is not a plan. Yes, and there's that Islamic proverb I've always liked: to trust in Allah, but tie your camel first. That's great. Jim and I are old enough to have grown up during the Cold War, when the greatest worry was not climate change, but something much more immediate, nuclear annihilation. Is this age, this time we're living in, as frightening as it was then? I think to young people it is. I mean, oddly enough, when we talk about intergenerational divides, which are a big thing, a thing I noticed is that younger people sometimes forget it, it wasn't masses of fun being, you know, 20 and... 1970, 1980, 1985, double-digit inflation, double-digit Actually, I, it was pretty fun, <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, despite the anxieties. Yeah, yeah, we well, did have sex, ro- drugs and rock and roll that our parents didn't have. We yeah. had sex until AIDS came along, you know, because yeah. there, are, there are micro-generational things about that too. Um, the basic truths about, you know, we could afford houses, they can't, that's true. And the overall social contract having slightly shifted... Um, that, you know, our parents were better off than their parents and they expected us to be better off than them. And that's gone away now. Our kids don't expect to be better off than us and we don't expect them to be better off than us. That's quite a profound shift. But there was stuff that was better. And people have forgotten the thing about the anxiety, I think, that, you know, nuclear war did actually haunt people's dreams. I, I used to regularly dream about the end of the world happening in the form of nuclear war. And this is an equivalent terror i think one of the things that's different about it though is the is actually oddly enough it's a cause for optimism i think it's that younger people process this very differently they they see it as a kind of as an emergency that this is a thing that takes collective action at mm-hmm. scale to solve it and um i think that's a cause for optimism it's not one thing in one political system that you can go and march and change it's a thing that we collectively can choose to act on and as a result You say for the first time, age is actually a better predictor of a person's politics than income, which is true both in Britain and in the United States. And that does feel like a shift to me, that that, um, traditional analysis of society, which is broadly speaking socioeconomic and, you know, it's to do with uh, affiliations of social background, economic background, what we think of as class, is just replaced by this thing of simply how old you are. And for things like the Brexit referendum, if you're allowed to ask one question, so the country was 52-48, I'm allowed to ask you one question to try and figure out how you voted. The most effective question is age. That tells me more than anything else. And this feels like there is a kind of change in the weather, change in, in the atmosphere in terms of just generations seeing the world differently. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with John Lanchester about some of the issues raised by his fascinating novel, The Wall. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. John, I'm interested in this intergenerational theme. How does it play out in the novel? Well, in the novel, what's happened, my, my main character, Joseph Kavanagh, and mm-hmm. I started to think about what, what, what would that be like if you had a world in which, in some of the more accelerated and grimmer versions of this climate change, you know, the change happens within a couple of generations or even in one generation. And Kavanagh in the book personalizes it. He blames his parents. He thinks they're the people who broke the world. And, and Kavanagh's parents stumble around sort of feeling guilty. I did think that, you know, it, this is like one of those things that you get in family arguments that happen when someone says something that's true, but it's not necessarily fair. So Kevin is completely telling the truth about how he feels, how he sees the world, his version of his parents. But at the same time, I did want the reader to think, well, you know, these poor middle-aged couple sitting there in the suburbs on their sofa watching TV, you know, is it really true that they broke the world? Another part of the book I found really interesting is your depiction of what you call the others. What did you look at for inspiration for depicting these, these characters in the book? Funny, it's one of those odd things I realized after I finished the book that was really powerfully present in it without my being aware of it. Was I, I grew up in Hong Kong, and a, a huge thing all through my childhood was the boat people crisis which is now largely forgotten. This, these are the boat people from Vietnam? Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, basically all Indochina, yeah, who, after those who fled in numbers at the end of the Vietnam War as you had various forms of social collapse. And they came in different waves. It lasted for 10 years, um, and there were tens and hundreds of thousands of people fleeing, and a lot of them came to Hong Kong. And my last summer there, 1979, I did some volunteer work in one of the camps where they were being held, from their point of view, indefinitely. And it was a shocking thing to see children effectively behind these in what it were more or less cages. And that was in my imagination, this image of starving, desperate people fleeing over water. I mean, Hong Kong, remembers a society built by refugees anyway. So there's something doubly shocking about refugees being locked up by a country that's kind of created by refugees. But the thing that's largely forgotten, at the time people said, no, it's impossible. There are tens of thousands of them. There are hundreds of thousands. What are we supposed to do? Well, the answer is what the world did is we resettled them. 2.5 million... 2.5 million boat people were successfully resettled all across the developed world. And, you know, you don't hear stories about, oh, you know, we took in some Vietnamese people and the the society collapsed, or, you know, everything went to hell once the Cambodians and Laotians got here. That was an entirely successful thing that the world has forgotten it did. Do you think that a sudden event, a, a terrible flood in a major city or an utterly disastrous hurricane will be the thing that leads to a change in the way we look at um, global warming and climate change. I mean, there's the, the scientist James Lovelock, who's a, who's a NASA scientist who's written very effectively, came up with that Gaia thesis, and he's written a lot about this. And he used to say that what the world needed was like the equivalent of a small, benign heart attack. Because sometimes people have a small heart attack and they completely change their life as a result of getting this scare. But you have to wonder 
given some of the things we've seen, I mean, not very long before we were talking, had the hottest day in Australian history, at the same time as we had minus 49 centigrade in Minnesota. To me, that looks a lot like that benign heart attack we're already talking about. You have these freakish records of temperature happening and these freak weather events happening already. Because it isn't just global warming. It isn't just global warming. And we have to wonder, I I mean, it sounds like a terrible thing, but we may have had all the warnings we're going to get. We are a solution show. Um, So any thoughts around how we can look at this problem more effectively or perhaps change the way we're thinking about the world? I suppose my project in the book is to try and stop it from happening by imagining it. I think there are a number of things, collective action at scale, and I think that's the first thing. Individual acts of virtue are virtuous in and of themselves, but by being careful about our recycling, it's not going to save the planet. We are talking about collective action. I I think the thing we'd probably start with, borrowing ideas from Charles Mann, who I think has written very well about it, think of CO2 emissions are a colossal thing single main thing we do to damage the climate there are two main sources of it transport and energy transport is tens of millions of people making individual decisions the other half of those emissions are power and that's coal there are three thousand coal power stations in the world so if you think about it tens of millions of cars versus three thousand coal power stations it's not too difficult to see which one we go after first we have something the equivalent of a marshall plan to address carbon capture and storage from power I think switching our diets would help a lot. I'm not talking about you know the occasional hamburger now and then, but actually a fundamental shift in terms of how we address agriculture and the emissions generated by agriculture. And I think then there's all totally more technical things that have quite a big impact quite fast, like um, uh, refrigeration, because the emissions from fridging and chilling equipment is very significant. So you know action at scale on the big things we can fix right now. And to not be shy about developing technology that we then transfer to developing and emerging countries and effectively give it away and act as if it's a world war and the world war is already here and the enemy is climate change. You mentioned some of the great works of literature that identified current problems and helped motivate people to to address them, but also some of the most famous works of dystopian fiction identify future possible roads we could go down you know think of things like brave new world or orwell's 1984 that are warnings and they're warnings of uh, scenarios that so far we have largely avoided i think you know the book like 1984 made such a vivid portrait of a surveillance state that it's always referenced as an argument against certain policies and to date reasonably effectively do you see your book playing a role like that? I hope so. I mean, I, I think the, the, the odd thing about 1984 is that it's the time when it might have seemed truer. And if we were having this conversation behind the Iron Curtain in, say, 1975, we would have been having it in private, in whispered voices, and, you know, making sure there I, were no... I, yeah, I should you know, say in the West. Yes, I mean, I mean, I think the most prophetic of those books is Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. And he wrote in order to prevent in, to prevent the world from he imagined from happening. And actually, to a, a lot of his predictions have come true. He predicted a, a kind of systematic attack on privacy, that there would be Zuckerberg thing that privacy is an outdated norm. Mm-hmm. Mark Zuckerberg said that could come straight out of Brave New World, where yeah. you know, you're deliberately supposed to share uh, everything. Also, the, the culture of people sort of entertaining themselves. Exactly. To death. The thing of entertainment as a form of 
collective anesthesia and a whole society numbing itself. That's in Huxley. Sex as entertainment, sex as a sort of morally contentless form of distraction and again, almost anesthetic. So Huxley, he's right about most things. And I used to play this party trick one of saying, okay, there's someone who, ha- who has meetings in a room who says, which says on the outside, only good news. Now, is that the world controller from Brave New World or is that Sheryl Sandberg? And the correct answer is Sheryl Sandberg. So, you know, Huxley's, you know, he's disconcertingly right. That, that in a sense, is his failure. The, the more right he is about the world we live in, the more failed his project was to prevent it from happening. But it gives us a tool to push back. That's right. And that's the thing you have to hope for in going the route of taking imaginative fiction, that you're giving away people to see things differently. It doesn't have to be like this. That's the moral of all utopian and dystopian fiction. It doesn't have to be like this. John Lanchester, author of The Wall, thanks for joining us on How Do We Fix It. Thank you for having me. So, Jim, this was the first time we've spoken with a novelist about his his nonfiction work. And it's also one of the first times we have very little to say. I think we had a great conversation with John. And for once, Richard, I don't have that much to add. Wow. Let's take it while we can. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm the unusually silent Jim Meggs. Our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. If you're interested in making a podcast and the audience for podcasting is growing all the time, then reach out and contact us. We're at DaviesContent.com. Thanks for listening. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.